Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we begin week two of our series on 1 Corinthians, the power of Christ in a pagan world. So let's join Dr. Neufeld as we examine the very heart of the gospel, the scandal of the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Have you ever wondered how a business or an organization chooses its logo? Well, I understand they'll often hire an advertising agency. They're made up of professionals. They give businesses or organizations just the right image. It's an image that's supposed to be both positive and sticks in the mind of the public. And once they have just the right logo, they plaster it everywhere, on their products, their letterheads, and newspapers, televisions, just so you, the potential customer, will make an emotional connection between an inviting image and the company or the product they're producing. Now, I don't claim to be an expert in logos, but I suspect the last thing any company would want is a logo that would be alienating and would cause a visceral, gut-level negative reaction in a big chunk of the population. I think they would stay away as a matter of policy from that which has to do with death or torture or abuse or something that has the potential to frighten children. I mean, imagine Nike, instead of having a swoosh and saying, just do it, imagine having a picture of people getting waterboarded, of people stretched out on a medieval rack and then saying, it takes torture to get in shape, wear our runners and let the agony start. I mean, people would protest and say, you know, I had family members who were abused and tortured, and this company shows no respect for them at all. You know, any company will want to stay miles away from divisive images. Rather, they want to give people positive images, unite them rather than divide them. Now, consider this from another perspective. Every religion and even many philosophies and political movements develop pictures, symbols, logos. In the United States, the Democrats have a donkey, a strong-willed animal, and the Republicans have an elephant, an animal not frightened by predators. Good, healthy, strong, uniting images. Buddhists chose a lotus flower as a key symbol for their religion, reminding people of the wheel of reincarnation. The old Marxists chose a hammer and a sickle, symbolizing industry and agriculture, meaning they wanted you to think that communism brought a prosperous economy. I mean, all those symbols were meant to characterize something. Have you ever wondered how it came to be that the universal symbol for the Christian faith should be the cross? In his book on the cross of Christ, John Stott points out there were all manner of options that the Christian faith could have chosen, all of which would have been acceptable and appealing and positive and emotionally engaging. Everything from a manger, I mean, the God who identifies with us, to a basin and a towel, the God who comes to serve, to an empty tomb, the God who triumphs over death, to a dove, you know, God the gentle lover or even a throne, the God who rules. I mean, all of these would have been acceptable. And any of these symbols might have been more popular than a cross. But, and this is remarkable, the universal symbol for the Christian faith is the cross. Now, I know, I know, crosses make excellent gold chains that adorn our necks, but that's not how the cross was thought of at first. Quoting again from John Stott, The Christian's choice of a cross as the symbol of their faith is the more surprising when we remember the horror with which crucifixion was regarded in the ancient world. How could any sane person worship as a god a dead man who had been justly condemned as a criminal? This combination of death, crime, and shame put him beyond the pale of respect, let alone worship. And something else seems surprising. 
As Paul will frankly admit, the cross was a particularly difficult concept for the Jews. Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 says that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. The idea of the long-awaited Messiah, crucified and under God's curse, makes conversion to Christ almost impossible for Jews. And then for Greeks, the cross was no better. It was considered irrational to them. Gods are known by their power, not by their mass of failure and defeat. So let me illustrate this. There's a little bit of graffiti that I know of, and it comes from the first century, and it's over 1,900 years old. It's true, 1,900-year-old graffiti, frightening to think of. Now, in my neighborhood, we have a man who's on a one-man mission to erase all graffiti in our neighborhood, and I'm very thankful for his efforts. It's been shown that graffiti diminishes neighborhoods, it encourages crime, but graffiti has been around for a long time, and amazingly, some of it has survived. And this bit of graffiti comes from the Palatine Hill in Rome on the side of a wall that was once a building used to train Rome's imperial pages. So this bit of graffiti was placed there probably by a student in the school. It shows a man hanging on a cross, but this man has the body of a man but the head of a donkey. And then it shows another man facing the donkey on the cross with his hands raised up in worship. And underneath it reads, Alexaminos worships his God. Now, Alexaminos must have been a Christian student in that school, and he had undoubtedly told everyone about his faith and about God becoming a man and dying on the cross for his sins. And undoubtedly, some thought it was a joke. With all the gods in Rome, this guy, Alexaminos, has found a god to worship who got crucified on a cross that makes about as much sense as worshiping a donkey. Some thought Alexaminos was an idiot who had a donkey god. Now, I share all of this to emphasize how implausible it seems, given the ancient world's instinctive rejection of the message of the cross, that you would make the cross the symbol of your faith. In today's Christian world, in which we often use marketing methodology to get our message out, we'd have done a survey and concluded, I think we're making a marketing mistake to place the cross in any of our literature. It's culturally unacceptable. It causes offense. It's rejected by a large part of the population who will not understand our message when they see it, and we need to find a better way of getting our message across. Now, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're coming to something that forms the essence of the Christian faith. I'm reading from chapter 1, 17 and 18, which reads, Paul is saying, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's follow this line of thinking. In verse 17, Paul tells us the emphasis of his ministry. Even though rhetoric and gifted oratory were highly prized in Corinth, so to use these tools would have seemed wise, for you're speaking in ways that the culture understands. And yet, Paul says he fundamentally rejects this message because to use it, in his words, would be to empty the cross of its power. How so? Now, before we seek to answer that question, please notice that Paul knew the value of learning to adapt his message in culturally sensitive ways. He's not opposed to adaptation. For instance, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20 to 22. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law, and so forth. And then he adds, I have become all things to all people, that I by all means might save some. So Paul was culturally adaptable. 
When in Jewish circles, he ate kosher. When in Gentile circles, he did not. But even more so, he knew how to culturally adapt his message. According to Luke's record of Paul's ministry in Corinth, Paul began by going to the synagogue, and from the Old Testament scriptures, he shows them that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. Yet in Athens, just before he arrives in Corinth, he makes mention of an altar to an unknown God, and then he makes an argument based upon creation and the need for Gentiles to seek the Creator. In the end, Paul spoke of Jesus and his cross and the resurrection. So here's what I find. His starting off place was different. His methodology in getting to the main issue was different. And yet the conclusion he's coming to was the same wherever he went. The point I'm trying to make is that while the message was always the same, the way in which he presented the message was often sensitive to the way in which cultures will hear that message. And that brings us back to our key question. Given that Paul adapted to his audience, why would he not adapt to the style of rhetoric that was so popular in Corinth? And the answer is clearly that Paul thought that to do so would be to take the spotlight off the cross and place the emphasis on human ability. It's one thing to speak in a manner in which people will understand. It's another thing to speak in a manner in which people will believe in human ability, that is, the wisdom of the speaker. Let's put it another way. Paul knew that there was one scandal, one offense, one outrage so utterly divisive that it was sure to cause the strongest response possible, and that was the cross. But he also knew that if he did anything to hide that scandal, he would be hiding from people their only hope for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And so he was very careful to make sure that no cultural form of preaching would ever hide the centrality of the cross. And so if he used a style of communication that highlighted everything from philosophy to emotional appeals to get people to come to Christ instead of the cross as front and center, he would be obscuring the only hope of salvation that his audience had. Here's what Paul knew whenever he preached the cross. A great portion of his audience would think the message to be folly, irrational madness, and yet he dared not remove this scandal that divides people. When we come back, we'll look at that in greater detail. I think today in our modern mentality, we often forget about the significance attached to the symbol of our faith, the cross. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will explain more deeply what is this message that continues to ignite such polarizing responses for those who hear it even today. Today might be the day for you to consider becoming a Back to the Bible Canada monthly partner. You know, hundreds of people from coast to coast to coast have chosen to support the Bible teaching ministries of Back to the Bible Canada in this way. They've become a part of the foundation of this ministry. You know, your monthly gift, whether it's $10, $50, $100, or $500, sustains this Bible teaching ministry, including the daily program you're listening to right now. So if you've been blessed and challenged by this ministry and want to invest in the ongoing Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld, well, give us a call today or sign up online. Choose to become a monthly partner. Call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible monthly partners. Together, we teach the Bible. 
I've entitled this message, The Scandal of the Cross. Paul says that the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but it is power to those who are being saved. Let's try a few images here that might help us. In 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16, Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one the fragrance of death and to the other the fragrance of life. I'm told that a Roman general, after he had won a major battle, would then be treated to a victory parade in Rome. He'd be riding a white horse and behind him would be the members of his army, victors, every one of them. But then last in the parade would be the captives, defeated soldiers and commanders from the enemy bound in chains. These men would be either be taken to be executed or many of them would be condemned to compete in the gladiatorial games. And at these parades, the crowds would cheer their victorious troops and, and jeer the defeated foes. And all throughout Rome, incense was being burned. And to the victorious Roman soldiers, this was the aroma of life. But to be defeated as a foreign commander, this was the aroma of death. And that, says Paul, is exactly what the gospel is. The same gospel with the cross at the center is life to some and death to others. I want you to think of the cross that way, an aroma of life and of death, a divisive smell in the air that smells so different depending on your perspective. Now, let's try another image. The cross is like a medical doctor's diagnostic tool. It's like going down to the hospital for a series of tests. Let's assume your doctor is afraid that you might have cancer. Let's assume for a moment that you're going to get an MRI. They put you on a gurney and they slide you into a narrow tube. It makes strange sounds if you've ever had that, but to the technician, it gives an interesting computer-generated picture of your internal organs. And from those images, the technician is able to make a medical diagnosis of your condition. You have cancer or you're cancer-free. It's curable or it's inoperable. And that's what the cross is. The cross is a diagnostic tool indicating the true state of your internal condition. Your response to the word or your response to the message of the cross is a kind of diagnosis of whether you have terminal spiritual cancer or not. And when you hear the message of the cross, your response tells you what will happen to you in eternity. Now, if you respond, folly, you're terminal. Or in Paul's word, you're perishing. And if you respond, the power of God, you're being saved. Now keep those two images in mind. Incense in a Roman victory parade, smells of life and death. And the cross as God's diagnostic tool exposing the true state of your spiritual health. Response to the cross is an indicator of your spiritual future. But that still leaves us with a question. When Paul uses the phrase, the word of the cross, or the message of the cross, what exactly does he mean? Well, let's let Paul answer his own question. In this same book, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, he says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And then two verses later, in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. So the gospel or the word of the cross, is the message that Christ died for our sins. It's what theologians and Bible teachers sometimes call the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Christ was substituted for us and made atonement for our sins. But what makes that message so scandalous? 
Why such an extreme response? And that either leads to outright rejection or charges of irrationality and foolishness. Why isn't it just good news? God offers me forgiveness and acceptance. Why can't everyone simply rejoice? Or let's put it another way. What is the nature of this foolishness? Well, in order to answer that question, we know it can't mean that the message itself is unreasonable. You know, if we examine Luke's description of Paul's ministry in Acts, it becomes clear that Paul often reasoned with people. For instance, Acts 17 verse 3 has Luke describing Paul's ministry in which he is described as reasoning and then explaining and then proving. You know, those are the words Luke uses to describe what Paul's doing. Nothing irrational going on here. Now, what then was so offensive or foolish about the gospel message? And I think there are hints of it found throughout 1 Corinthians. Remember that this passage is a part of Paul's wider appeal to the Corinthians to stop forming into factions and dividing the church. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, he says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You know, Paul is saying that the reason for human boasting is canceled out in the gospel message. All that human beings possess has been given to them as an act of grace by God. It is God's gift, not something they have worked for. And the cross is the heart of that message. Nothing you do, says the cross. Nothing you do can earn anything before God. You offer God nothing and can't even begin to save yourself. You are utterly helpless. Now, this kind of message flies into the face of much of our own self-assured philosophy of life. People boast in their own accomplishments all the time. It is incredibly humbling and ego-destroying to think that there is nothing you have that has not been given to you as a gift. All you can do to that message is to say, thank you. See, I remember once after I had finished preaching, a woman made a beeline for me right up to the pulpit. She climbed up the steps, was standing there. I had hardly said amen, and she'd already planted herself right in front of me. And without saying hi or my name is Nancy or whatever her name was, she looked menacing. And then she said in a most accusatory tone, saved from what? You know, I tried to, as gently as I could, tell her about the enormity of my sin and hers and the fullness of God's grace. And surprisingly, she listened to me most patiently and then just as angrily said, so what you're saying is that all I've done for God up till now counts for nothing. And I gave her a one-word answer, yes. And she said, I find that offensive. Exactly. Both of us understood the point exactly as Paul had given it. That's the offense. That's the scandal. That's the outrage of the cross. It strips you of all reason for boasting and leaves no credit to any human accomplishment at all. And in response, much of human activity and achievement reflects exactly the opposite perspective. It was the philosopher Spinoza who argued against the idea of a personal God, also declared that joy consists in this, he said, that one's power is increased. And the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche argued for much the same thing, saying that joy is the feeling that power increases and that resistance is overcome. 
You know, kings, presidents, rulers often argue that the reason they seek office and carry on in difficulties is because of the joy of using their power to accomplish things. I mean, they might be good or they might be evil, but the motivation for the use of power is often that we do something to accomplish something that lasts beyond our own time. And this is especially true also for those who seek fame. Many seek in this life to accomplish something that they can be remembered for, something that their name will never be forgotten. And the great driving force behind so much human activity is the desire for recognition, the idea that we have the power to accomplish something that will outlast our time. You know, it was Pascal who said that even in books where men despise those who seek fame, in those very books, said Pascal, men inscribe their own names. We have all listened to the serpent who says we can be like God himself. And the cross utterly scandalizes us because it tells us that our sins are so great that unless the Son of God would die for us, we are lost. God insists that this message remain at the center. God insists that we should get no credit at all and that he should get all the glory. Scandal, outrage, humiliation the hope of all who are being saved. John, thanks for today's message. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about our modern day culture. And I was thinking how, in essence, the cross has become minimized or it's become trite almost as we see it as a fashion statement on on earrings and necklaces and shoelaces. You name it, they put the cross there, but it really doesn't mean anything. What should the cross be saying to our modern culture? I think the cross should be saying, you are so sinful, so helpless and unable to do one thing for yourself before God, all that is left for you is wrath. But Christ has taken the wrath for you. So the cross should speak about wrath, about human sinfulness, and uh, you know that old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, it's my only hope. Um, I think that needs to be restated, and maybe if we stated it as offensively as the Bible actually makes it, I mean, it might be that the cross would stop being this wonderful symbol that we want to wear because it so divides people in their opinions of God and of themselves. I think we need to recapture the scandal of the cross. Is the message of the cross, Christ's atoning death on your behalf, scandalous to you? Or is it truly the power of God? Our response really does dictate the spiritual condition and future of our souls. Join us tomorrow as we continue this series exploring 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 19-25 with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Time is running short and space is now very limited. So now's the time to decide to join Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and Friends from February 7th to the 16th, 2020 on our Back to the Bible Canada Southern Caribbean cruise. Sail the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas. Visit Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. Specially designed to enjoy all that the cruise line has to offer and be spiritually refreshed and encouraged under the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and special musical guests Shane and Angela Weeb. 
Come on your own or bring your family and friends. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca, laughagain.ca, or call us at 1-800-663-2425, but register soon to avoid disappointment. And remember that all the costs associated with ministry vacation events are funded exclusively by the participants, and no ministry resources are used for this purpose.